we didn't do episodes for the past two weeks because I was up in Alaska. Oh, uh, yeah. So the great beyond. America's great, great beyond. That's uh, the motto, I Is think. Is that right? their motto? I think so. <laughs> I believe so. And not to brag, but as it, as it turns out, I've learned a lot about Alaska from this podcast. Oh, oh, from this podcast. From this podcast, from teaching on this podcast. I couldn't believe <laughs> oh, it. Oh, shit. On the one episode of where we actually got on like Russia, Alaska, and then Alaska, you kept saying, well, what's their top eco- economic yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. And so during the trip, I was like, well, Christine, or White Bones, well, White Bones, they have the, they have oil. That's a major employer. Yeah, yeah. The federal government is yep. huge. Huge over there. Yeah. Tourism is a big one. And then fishing is about number three or number four. And she's like, how do you know all this? And I'm like, I'm just, I just know stuff. This and is just then, me. This is the person you married. Okay. This is just yeah, who I am I and get used to it. <laughs> I'm going to drop more, more intellect on you. And also please listen, rate and review our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And then when we were up in Denali, we were on this like bus through the park to get to our campground and the bus driver was announcing stuff and he's like, we're driving through a taiga forest right now. And I said to Christine, I was like, taiga, uh, you know, it's actually a tundra level forest. I don't know if you knew this or not, but stuff tends to not grow very big because there's a short growing season. It's very cold. And uh, I was just spitting out these wiki you facts. Fuck yeah, dude. And then from the bus, we saw a uh, caribou. And I was like, they're known as caribou here <laughs> in Alaska. But in, the, in, in many parts of the world, they're known as reindeer. And the biggest reindeer herd, I don't know if you know this or not, is in Russia. And it's somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 reindeer. Hell yeah. Tough to get a proper count of that. And anyway, there were more facts. I was spitting out facts left and right, That's man. That's great, man. Hell yeah, dude. You, sh- you showed her. I couldn't believe it. You won that Alaska trip. You won. I killed it. Did you carry your gun? Did you carry a gun? Kyle, safety first, man. Nah, I didn't bring a gun. There's bears around. Are you kidding me? Well, we did carry bear spray. What is that? Like axe spray? It's like pepper spray for bears. So Pepper it's spray like... for bears? Oh, is that like you throw it on you so you taste better when the bear eats you? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a nice marinade. It's a human marinade. <laughs> you just know you're going to die, so you just might as well pepper up. and You just pepper yourself. You spray it on. Maybe he'll kill me quick. He'll the bear will eat you quicker if you taste better. But if you don't, if you don't <laughs> exactly. have any spices on you, he's gonna chew and chew, trying to look for that flavor. You know. But you got to do it twenty four hours ahead of time. <laughs> you have to, of course. So it gets in your pores. You want it to soak in. You want to take a hot shower and then throw on some <laughs> of that bear pepper. White bones did buy these things called bear bells. You know, they're just like Christmas bells, basically, that ring the whole time. And they, they, you put them on your bag and they, they alert the bears that you're coming. Are you but, sure that's what that does? Well, the ranger was like, <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, bear bells don't work. <laughs> actually, it's the bears who have been pushing this. It just announces, like, I'm here. Eat me. That's what I would think it does. It makes the bears salivate. 
Who's selling these things? Like bears or bears are selling? <laughs> REI is selling these things. They're really peddling the bear bells. Anyway, we 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 had a bear bell, but then you know the guy is like, and I don't know how this became a universal bear thing, but I've seen it everywhere where everybody's method for for warning the bears is to go, no. "Hey bear, hey bear." Hey, bear. That's it. To warn the bear. That's it. Yeah, just to let the bear know you're coming. But I don't know. You know, bears (laughs) don't know English. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, so wait, bears know that they're called bears? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You could really just say anything. I think it's more about just your voice approaching. No, if you say hola oso, you're (laughs) screwed. They'll eat you right away. They actually, bears speak Spanish, and when they hear Spanish, they know that person is going to be flavorful. (laughs) Your words, not mine. (laughs) The bear knows, like, oh, okay, that that Latino right there. Like, if I was there, it'd be like, oh, that Latino right there, he's... He looks like a nice and spicy meatball. You know what I mean? <laughs> Jay- like, Jason's got some spice. <laughs> but then these, you know, they might see you and it's like, oh, well, you know, I think I might go for the spicy meatball. You know? Yeah, yeah. You've been marinating your whole life. I'm like boiled cabbage. Right? <laughs> yeah. Hey everyone, and welcome to Wiki University, a podcast that dives down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia to explore the sum of all human knowledge. I'm Kyle Berseth, your host and dean of this prestigious institution, and as always, I'm joined by the star of the fall semester, Jason Nunez. This week, take a trip with Jason and I as we declare eminent domain on Wikipedia. We'll explore the seedy history of Shenandoah National Park, learn about the deadly Hatfield and McCoy feud, and make our way to Coco, the only gorilla to both learn sign language and get caught up in a Me Too scandal. Everybody take your seats because class is now in session. My topic for today is Shenandoah National Park, which is located in Virginia, Springfield, Virginia, actually. It uh, is not in Springfield, Virginia. <laughs> it's in my, it's my backyard. Up. Yeah, it is, Kyle. Shut up. It's my backyard. No, you shut up. I have a whole national park in my backyard, baby. That's my modest no home. Way. My modest eight-bedroom national park uh, home. Uh <laughs> So yeah, no, that's my um, my topic. I'm very interested. I've never actually gone, but I will be soon because my brother had has just moved out there uh, in the park. He is now in charge of the whole park. He's a bear. He's in charge of the whole park. Yeah, he's a park ranger now. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome, actually. White Bones wants to retire and become a ranger. That's not retiring. When it's your passion, it's not your job. So when there's like, I wake up and scream that in the mirror every morning. What is your passion? It's not your job. To remind you, yeah. Good. Somebody has to do it. 
So I can't wait. I'm very excited to kind of like go. Well, like I said, my brother just lived, uh, just moved over there nearby, down south over there, and um, we're gonna be planning a, a, a hike, a day, or just one a base level check it out because he's that close. Yeah, and then we want to really plan something cool to take the kids out and stuff like that. All right, well, let's dive into your oh, topic. my topic. Yeah, I gotta you forgot about you yours. My, top- my topic is uh, Coco the gorilla. I don't, I don't really know who Coco is, but uh, I, mean, I just know the reference of it. I never really didn't they make movies based off of it? Like, uh, I think Congo. Meet Joe Blunt. No, not that one. <laughs> the movie was Mighty Joe Young. Mighty Joe Young. There you go. I got that one confused with Meet Joe Black. <laughs> Dude, the beginning of Meet Joe Black. Oh, fuck. When he gets hit by the car. Hey, spoilers, bro. Spoilers to our listeners. Ah, I forgot my 1994 spoilers. Oh, my God, dude. That movie's so insane. But I definitely got those mixed up. But, yeah, no, you're right. Uh, What is it? Uh, Joe, what is it? Joe Young? Mighty Joe Young. Mighty Joe Young. And when the gorilla gets hit by a bus (laughs) and a car. That'd be amazing. That was that was some of the funniest CGI I've ever seen in my life. Oh, it's so great to rewind and yes, watch him. Yes, like once I was able, yes, and turn. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. I fast forward and went back exactly to when he's like bouncing. It basically looked like tennis uh, with Brad Pitt's body just going back and forth. Yeah, back it was and like forth. pew pew. Yep. pew. <laughs> oh my god! All right, let's read a little bit about Coco. I'm guessing he's dead. I'm guessing that girl is dead by now, right? Coco died June nineteenth. 2018. And Coco was survived by uh, Harambe? No, Coco outlived Harambe, dude. Wait, really? Yeah, Harambe died in like 2014 or 15. Don't you know when your famous gorillas died? Nope. Uh, Coco lived to be 46 (laughs) years old, dude. Dude, that's long. That's legit. I mean... A lot of people, a lot of people have don't make it that far. That's that's insane. And they knew, and he knew sign language. She, she, Coco was a female Western lowland gorilla known for having learned many hand signs from a modified version of American Sign Language, also known as ASL. Coco was born in captivity at the San Francisco Zoo and lived most of her life in Woodside, California, which I believe is like Silicon Valley area. Uh, at the Gorilla Foundation's preserve in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Coco's actual name is Hanabiko, which is uh, of Japanese origin, and it means fireworks child. Hanabiko. It's a reference to her date of birth, the 4th of July. Yeah, that's cool. Where did Coco come from? The name, then. The nickname. I don't know. Maybe we'll figure that out. What if Coco had, like, a huge cocaine problem? <laughs> And there, and as a baby, as a baby, right? And it was then, a cocaine baby, gorilla. Yeah, it, was a, it was a little, little cocoa baby, and they're like, little coke baby. Hey, there, little coke baby, don't you cry? Coco's mom was freebasing in the <laughs> zoo. <laughs> well, 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 oh yeah, well, he was in the womb. She sad story, but it, it ended in a nice way. Her instructor and caregiver, Francine Patterson, reported that Coco had an active vocabulary of more than 1,000 signs of what Patterson calls gorilla sign language. Whoa, Coco knows how to say freebase. <laughs> Coco knows how to say, I want more cocaine. That's cool. <laughs> 
All right, I skipped down to media just so we have some things to shoot for in case we need to. Um, the book Congo was inspired by Coco's story. Michael Crichton, who we, I think we talked about on the Chicago episode. Uh, National Geographic is in here. Reading Rainbow. Oh, there was a 2001 short featurette called Coco and Robin Williams. And it's about Robin Williams meeting Coco. So we could try to get to Robin Williams, kid shows, stuff like that. All right, let's go to Shenandoah National Park and make our way back to Coco the Gorilla. We're start. Oh, we're starting with National Park. Yeah, we're starting with Shenandoah, and we're going to go to Coco. Shenandoah it is. Shenandoah National Park is an American national park that encompasses part of the Blue Ridge Mountains in the Commonwealth of Virginia. The park is long and narrow with the Shenandoah River and its broad valley to the west and the rolling hills of the Virginia Piedmont to the east. Skyline Drive is the main park road generally traversing near the ridgeline of the mountains. Almost 40% of the land area has been designated as wilderness and is protected as part of the National Wilderness Preservation System. The highest peak is Hawksbill Mountain at 4,051 feet. Okay, that's legit. That's okay. That's okay. okay. I mean, for for the Commonwealth, I expect it better, honestly. But, you know, that's okay. Uh, What about, give me some, is there any, like, rich history and stuff like that? Yeah, there's rich history. Oh, also, how do national parks become a national park again? What's... Uh, I believe the f- the first one was uh, maybe Yellowstone or Yosemite. I can't remember, but Teddy, I think Teddy Roosevelt started them, or he had a big hand that's right hand yes. in them in after preserving. after going hunting or something. Right. <laughs> yeah, he he went and hunted animals and was like, "We got to preserve this." They got great game <laughs> over here. We got to preserve this. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's the uh, creation of the park. Oh, boy, this is going to be fun. Legislation. <laughs> you know when legislation is involved, get uh, buckle up. It's going to be a roller coaster. <laughs> I'll try to sift through this shit. Legislation to create a national park in the Appalachian Mountains was first introduced uh, by some dude in 1901. Despite the support of President Teddy Roosevelt, it failed to pass. Oh, maybe Roosevelt wasn't president when the first national okay the first national park was yellowstone uh that was in 1972 yosemite national park was 1890 so they preceded teddy roosevelt actually okay Uh, i skipped ahead a little bit the commonwealth of virginia slowly acquired the land through eminent domain and then gave it to the u.s federal government to establish the national park are you familiar with eminent domain? No, it sounds like an internet term, but... It's when the government comes in and says, hey, we're taking your land because it's for public good. So a lot of times, like, if, they build a, if they're building a highway through it, an area, they'll just say to the homeowners, we're going to buy your land from you at market value and go pound sand. This is the way it goes. You can't say no. You can't say, I won't sell my house. You can try to say no. You can try to say no. I I believe um, in New York City, they wanted to build, maybe in the 60s, they wanted to build a highway through Greenwich Village. Like, they wanted to tear down part of Greenwich Village, and there were protests, and um, 
and they prevented it from happening. Luckily, no, but I would have liked a highway there. I'm, I'm, in I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I honestly, Greenwich Village or whatever the fuck, I think uh, it could have been better used for to speed up traffic in that godforsaken place. One of the most iconic neighborhoods in New York City. <laughs> Get it out of here. Yeah, yeah, it's time is done. We need yeah. a highway running. Yeah, might as well. You know, it's great and stuff. Why not close it up while it's on top? You know what I mean? Wrap it up. <laughs> or do you want to wait till it gets All ruined? All things must die. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, here's what happened with Shenandoah. Some families accepted the payments because they needed the money and wanted to escape this subsistence lifestyle. Nearly 90% of the inhabitants worked the land for a living, selling timber, charcoal, or crops. They had previously been able to earn money to buy supplies by harvesting chestnuts, by working during the apple and peach harvest season, but the drought of 1930 devastated those crops and killed many fruit trees. By selling handmade textiles and crafts and moonshine, they also made money that way. Okay, politicians did not seek citizen input in the process, nor convince residents that they could live better in a tourist economy. Instead, they started with an advertising campaign to raise the funds and courthouse property evaluations and surveys. So they just secretly went ahead. Took it from them? Did they take it from them from underneath them a little bit? It sounds like it. Here we go. When... When many families continued to refuse to sell their land in 1932 and 1933, proponents changed tactics. Freeman, I don't know who that was. He, he was probably mentioned somewhere in the article already. Freeman hired social worker Miriam Sizer to teach at a summer school he had set up near one of the workers' communities and asked her to write a report about the conditions in which they lived. So he sent in a secret social worker to teach at a school that he set up. How much money was all that? How much bills were spent doing that? Oh, teachers, social workers, they get paid nothing. It's, it's It's a drop in the bucket compared to getting free land. I guess, but to set up a whole school, I know, but it's still like so much to do like it's they a go- school in a poor community it's like a one-room schoolhouse probably yeah. she was probably teaching k through 12 <laughs> oh she was teaching all of them k through 12 yes all at the same time i don't know how it works but our fishing guide in alaska was like my daughter is in i don't know first grade and she's in a one-room schoolhouse and it's k through 12 and there's 11 students they don't even have a student for every grade wow that's, and there's one teacher. That's crazy. I feel bad for that teacher. She's got to like handle a lot. <laughs> I like, know. From babysitter, from basically a babysitter to like straight up like you got to know shit about te- testing and making sure these kids like get into a college and shit. Like, oh fuck that. So what happens to the spy? She how does how does the story end up? Does she get killed? All right, she. So she, <laughs> she she got murdered by the hill people. Look, I'm just saying when there's money involved like that, like you're right. These are this is a lot of money, money and land and all that shit, you know? So people end up, you know, uh with the fishies. Oh, sounds kind of fishy. Yep. All right. So she wrote a report saying that these people are living in poverty. Although later discredited, the report depicted the local population as very poor and inbred and was soon used to support forcible evictions 
and burning of former cabins so residents would not sneak back. How is that useful information? Like, I think as a social worker, she was trying to prove to the courts why eminent domain would actually help these people. She was trying to prove that they were living in squalor, essentially. No running water, no electricity, and it would actually benefit them to be moved off this land while also benefiting the public good. Have you been to Skyline Drive? It kind of, I mean, it's kind of nice. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely. I don't want to defend, uh, very rarely do I defend white people, poor white people, let alone white people. But <laughs> Very rarely do you hear about white people getting pushed off their land. Right. By other white people. I like the, I would totally be fine if they got kicked out. No, no, I would be for it if they were kicked out for being white. I'm not for it because they were kicked out for being poor. And that, I think, is unfair. Being poor, yes. Yeah. The inbred part, I mean, that, you know, I think what you do behind your closed door... No, just... (laughs) I think it's totally fucking... (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was later discredited, but maybe a little inbred? I'm sure there was... I'm sure it was discredited, but there's a lot of truth to you know as if there's we, smoke there's fire there's smoke there's fire baby and you know i'm coming because i'm the fire man <laughs> you know i'm coming because i'm the fire are you gonna go find your sister or yeah yeah <laughs> what yeah. are you talking about both both you're <laughs> <laughs> the same person save i save one per i save one person and i and i saved both my sister and my cousin oh man things get complicated In 1933, somebody and some other guy published a book called Hollow Folk, Hollow Folk, drawing pitying eyes to local conditions and quote-unquote hillbillies. As in many rural areas of the time, most remote homesteads in the Shenandoah lacked electricity and often running water, as well as access to schools and health facilities during many months. All right, so uh, Shenandoah National Park was finally established on December 26, 1935. Construction began on the Blue Ridge Parkway that somebody wanted. FDR, known racist who hated Jesse Owens. Known racist. Formally opened Shenandoah National Park on July 3rd, 1936. All right, so to wrap up the uh, that story about the the hill people eventually about 40 people were allowed to live out their lives on land that became the park one of them was this dude who had a house that was later listed on the national register let's see oh the last grandmothered resident i've never heard grandmothered like grandmothered in this grandmother was grandfathered in Uh, (laughs) ah nice The last grandmothered resident was Annie Lee Bradley Schenk. National Park Service employees had watched and cared for her since 1950. She died in 1979 at the age of 92. Most others left quietly. 85-year-old Hezekiah Lamb explained, I ain't so crazy about leaving these hills, but I never believed in being against the... It says, again, the government, and then in parentheses it says, against. (laughs) 
<laughs> I signed everything they asked me. That's uh, that's the story of how the park got made. It took took thirty six years. It took it took uh, a couple of white people being kicked out and forty being left alone to to die there. Yes, yeah, to slowly die in a rocking chair. Um, I mean, I say it's worth it. Kyle, what do you say? Was it worth it? You've seen Skyline Drive more often than I have. Pretty great park. Kind of worth it. Pretty great park. Hey, you heard it here first. Five Kyles out of five Kyles. <laughs> Kyle gives it five out of five Kyles for Shenandoah National Park. <laughs> that's my, that's our new rating system. Yeah, it's just like your face. Like, hey, it's just you with camping gear, like a gigantic backpack <laughs> in the back. And you're like, yeah. Eminent domain. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so ironically, ironically, after they kicked out the whites... There was, believe it or not, segregation. Between between what? Who's left? Between what? <laughs> the 40 people there? The ones who are inbred and not inbred? I don't understand who... We gotta, we gotta go to a new topic here. I mean, we could go to eminent domain. We could go to mountain people. Yeah, yeah, hillbillies. I want to see freaks. <laughs> we covered freaks in another episode. Yeah, but I want to see... I want to see homegrown Virginia Commonwealth freaks. All right. I'm going to homegrown Virginia Commonwealth freaks. I can't believe that's a link. (laughs) All right. Mountain people took me to Appalachia. What's that? That's a place? Appalachia is a cultural region in the eastern United States that stretches from the southern tier of New York State to northern Alabama and Georgia. While the Appalachian Mountains stretch from Belle Isle in Canada to somewhere in Alabama, the cultural region of Appalachia typically refers only to the central and southern portions of the range, from the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, southwesterly to the Great Smoky Mountains, which are in Tennessee. Oh, okay, here you go. Appalachia has been a source of enduring myths and distortions regarding the isolation, temperament, and behavior of its inhabitants. Early 20th century writers often engaged in quote-unquote yellow journalism focused on sensationalistic aspects of the region's culture such as moonshining and clan feuding and often portrayed the region's inhabitants as uneducated and prone to impulsive acts of violence. Yeah, I mean, if you have to shit outside in a bucket or bury it every time you go, it's like, I'd be pretty pissed too and pretty agitated. And if anybody fuck with me, I'll fucking probably murder them and eat them at the same time while I'm having intercourse with them. Don't don't forget sodomy. (laughs) Oh, never. Hats off to sodomy, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> I said hats off, not salute. You just made me salute. <laughs> <laughs> salute to sodomy. <laughs> That's salute the army's sod- motto. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a huge article. So we could go to... There's got to be people that went away, right? Is there anybody like... What do you mean that went away? That like escaped that life that was like a former mountain Yeah, person? here you go. Here's some people who went away. Native American hunter-gatherers <laughs> first arrived in what is now Appalachia over 16,000 years ago. The earliest discovered site is the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter in Washington County, Pennsylvania. I think that's out by Pittsburgh, which some scientists claim is pre-Clovis culture. Oh, you love Clovis culture. Love Clovis. Clovis 19? Several other archaic period 
which is 8,000 to 1,000 BC, archaeological sites have been identified in the region, such as St. Albans site in West Virginia and the Ice House Bottom site in Tennessee. Uh, let's see. So perhaps no single figure symbolizes the Appalachian pioneer more than Daniel Boone, a long hunter and surveyor instrumental in the early settlement of Kentucky and Tennessee. Like Boone, Appalachian pioneers moved into areas largely separated from civilization by high mountain ridges and had to fend for themselves against the elements. Yeah, these are tough people. I get it. I mean, yeah, if you're living in a mountain, you got to be tough. Here's some of the stereotypes. Uh, Smoke, there's fire. The late 19th and 20th century also saw the development of various regional stereotypes. Attempts by President Rutherford B. Hayes to enforce the whiskey tax in the late 18th... (laughs) 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 The naughtiest president... (laughs) Oh, behaves. <laughs> <laughs> All right, attempts by president by naughty president Rutherford B. Hayes to enforce the whiskey tax in the late 1870s led to an explosion in violence between Appalachian moonshiners and federal revenuers. I guess that's tax collectors that lasted through the prohibition period in the 1920s. So we're talking 50 or 60 years. The breakdown of authority in law enforcement during the Civil War may have contributed to an increase in clan feuding, which by the 1880s was reported to be a problem across most of Kentucky's Cumberland region as well as Carter County in Tennessee, Carroll County in Virginia, and Mingo and Logan counties in West Virginia. They just said at the top of this article, they were like, you know, there's these long-held stereotypes of clan feuding and inbreeding and idiots and blah, blah, blah. And now they're just telling us about how clan feuding was a problem. Yeah, all over the place in that area. If there's smoke, there's fire, and that fire is making moonshine in the woods, apparently. Regional writers from this period, such as some lady and some dude, like to focus on such sensational aspects of mountain culture, leading readers outside of the region to believe they were more widespread than in reality. Well, it sounded like it was a problem to me. There were articles, blah, blah, blah. Today, residents of Appalachia are viewed by many Americans as uneducated and unrefined, resulting in culture-based stereotyping and discrimination in many areas, including employment and housing. Such discrimination has prompted some to seek redress under prevailing federal and state civil, uh, civil rights laws. Wow. When white people are going for civil rights laws. <laughs> and in Virginia, this is our people in Virginia, Virginia. West Virginia and Tennessee and Kentucky. Yeah. Just yeah. the whitest states. Yeah. All right. Here's feuds. Appalachia and especially Kentucky became nationally known for its violent feuds, especially in the remote mountain districts. They pitted the men in extended clans against each other for decades, often using assassination and arson as weapons, along with ambushes, gunfights, and prearranged shootouts. Yeah, can I be honest? Assassinations? Pretty good weapon. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> 
That'd be my weapon of choice. <laughs> hey, pick your weapon. All right, assassination. <laughs> you don't know when it's coming or where, but that's my weapon of choice. <laughs> and prearranged shootouts. I love getting on someone's schedule. Oh, like duels. Duels, and shit. yeah. Oh, okay. So they were really at it. I mean, they were really yeah. Ambushes like, and gunfights. Uh, it was a clan war. Yeah, and I think you know they're out in the woods, so there's probably there's not like uh, police to. They probably self police quite a bit. That's my guess. So who's who's fighting who? I mean, because it's not like there aren't teams. So is it just <laughs> clans? It's just fa- families, it's clans, right? So the. Oh, clan. Well, what is, what is what does that mean? Does that mean like a family, or does that mean like a family, like more than two well, families? Well, have you heard of the Hatfield like, McCoy feud? Hatfields and McCoys. It's probably the most well-known one. The infamous Hatfield McCoy feud of the 19th century was the no best idea. known of these family feuds. Some of the feuds were continuations of violent local civil war episodes. So I guess they started during the civil war. Ah, you know, you got union confederate, although I'm guessing most of these, I'm getting some very confederate vibes from these Appalachian people. You know what I'm saying? When they're going for white civil rights, I'm getting some, uh, Hey, what about white people vibes? Yeah. I mean, and then, and back in those days it was fine. All right. I went to Hatfield McCoy feud. Which of the wait, wait? Can you draw a a better a picture for me, like of of the um, Hatfields and McCoys? Like who's who are the Capulets and who are the Montagues? And I guarantee some of these Hatfields and McCoys were were uh, definitely definitely I touching bet, dicks, you know. Most definitely, and I bet it has to do a lot with that as well. Like just the fact that there was. Like sleeping with sleeping with whosoever wife cousin whatever it may be. You banged my sister. I, only I banged my sister. Right. I mean, they could. Hey, by all means, if rules are rules, but you know, at least abide by them. That's all I'm saying. All right. The Hatfield McCoy feud, also described by journalists as the Hatfield McCoy War, involved two rural American families of the West Virginia Kentucky area, along the Tug Fork and Big Sandy River. In the years 1863 to 1891, the Hatfields of West Virginia were led by uh, some dude whose nickname was Devil Ancy Hatfield, while the McCoys of Kentucky were under the leadership of someone whose nickname was Old Rand McCoy. Is that is that where the name The Real McCoy comes from? Or some mm. sort of... Where is that from? The Real McCoy. I've heard that before. I've right? heard The Real McCoy, too. But I don't know if it came from, from old Ram. I feel like I feel like he's the realest of McCoys. True, so he's the him. OG. He's the OG. He's the cl- he's the Coke classic. Yeah, yeah. He's not that new Coke McCoy. Yeah, that's a funny name too, though. New Coke McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, those involved. Those involved in the feud were descended from Joseph Hatfield and William McCoy. We can't get into this. The feud has entered American folklore lexicon uh, as a metonym for any bitterly feuding rival parties. Bloods and Crips, for example. The MS-13s and MS-12s. Classic rivalry, maybe. All right, let's get into the feud here. The Hatfields were more affluent than the McCoys, which, you know, by mountain standards, it's kind of like he's got one of those double outhouses. Ooh, a double out. 
Ooh, a double out. The Hatfields were more affluent than the McCoys and were well-connected politically. The Devils, I'm just going to call this guy the Devil, the Devil Ancy. Uh, the Devil's timbering operation was a source of wealth for his family, while the McCoys were more of a lower middle class family. Old Rail owned a 300-acre farm. Both families had also been involved in the manufacturing and selling of illegal moonshine, a popular commodity at the time. It comes with the territory, man. I ain't mad at that. Is there a movie about them? Like there is... I think there was a TV show or a miniseries. Let's see. Oh, Hatfields and McCoys in the modern era. In 1979, the families united for a special week's taping of the popular game show Family Feud, in which they played for cash prize and a pig. In when? 1979? They played for a cash prize and a pig, which was kept on stage. That's something they asked for, right? That wasn't like... That's not... I don't think that's part of the... uh, prizes packages for uh family i love feud. i love that the producers were like look we gotta insert some of the mountain people stereotypes into this show and there's gonna be a pig on stage the entire time but you all will call it a hog but it's a pig the mccoy family won the week-long series we surveyed 100 people and asked them who's the best family member to have sex with But then they only uh, take a survey from mountain people. So the number one answer is like your mother or like your sister and (laughs) shit like that. Yeah, yeah. So they actually get it right. So they kill it. So, so yeah. So then they've been they've been around for a while in in the papers. Dude, I think it's big business now because there's a musical comedy dinner show in Tennessee. What what do you mean, based off of them? Yeah, based off of them. Musical comedy. (laughs) Ha ha, we all killed each other. Hilarious. There's the Hatfield and McCoy Reunion Festival and Marathon are held annually in June on a three-day weekend. The events take place in Kentucky, West Virginia. Festival commemorates the the famed feud and includes a marathon and a half marathon. Yeah, that's so funny. I, you know, hats off for including a marathon and a half marathon. Here you go. In 2012, Lionsgate Filmed released a direct-to-DVD film titled Hatfields and McCoy's Bad Blood. Ooh, I bet they've been on The Simpsons. They had to have been referenced. Oh, yeah, they must have. They've been on, uh, or it's been... (laughs) The Flintstones featured a feud between the Hat Rocks and the Flintstones in an episode called The Flintstone Hillbillies. The fifth season of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, featured an episode titled The Whofields and McColts. I love how adults are writing these shows and they're like, Exactly. Let's yep. insert this <laughs> inbred family. It's funny how kids know sometimes that whatever they say, it comes out. Like, like how, like you try to find out where they got that from, where they know oh, that yeah. that's something that's super old, that there's no way you could have seen or heard that. Like, where did you get it? I did that with Ninja Turtles growing up. They were doing impressions where they were like, Ooh, you dirty rat. You killed my bro. And I yeah. don't even know what yeah. that's from. And I remember saying it to my dad and he got a real kick out of it, but he had to wonder like, 
Why is Kyle quoting this 1940s movie that I've never even seen? Right. Because there's a bunch of stuff that I learned from Animaniacs. Animaniacs was the best. So many layers of references of old, especially old movies and old sitcoms and stuff like that. So it was just like, I I could imagine how I'm surprised at my niece now. I I was surprising to the grownups in my family and stuff like that. Like, where does he pull this from, you know? So... There's got to be like a Simpsons episode. I, Simpsons references I everything. I do not That's see insane. the Simpsons in here. Modern Family was a recent one. Banana. I mean, your guy uh, Buster Keaton is in here. Anyway, we got it. We got to get to Coco. So I feel like we. I feel like entertainment is a good. When route. did Mighty Joe Young in Congo come out? That yeah, that's the nineties, uh, I guess. Congo. I remember that. Um, we could try to go to like. Get to Robin Williams. Didn't he have a sitcom on CBS or ABC or something? Oh, uh, yes. I actually, I did, I did like it actually. Really? Um, I think you're the you're the one. Let's go to Modern Family and then go to sitcom. And at least maybe maybe there'll just be a list in there. Yes. The only reference I know of Coco that I remember was the Seinfeld episode. Oh, all right. Well, maybe we can get to it through Seinfeld then, too. All right. I went to Modern Family. Modern Family is an American television mockumentary family sitcom created by Christopher Lloyd. Uh, all right. Ooh, I'm has, going has to. Has Seinfeld ever been on Modern Family? I bet somebody from Modern Family, like, that has been on Seinfeld was on Modern Family, too. I, I don't know. I went to sitcom. A sitcom. Oh, that's way easier. Clipping for situational comedy, which is in the U.S., is a genre of comedy centered on a fixed set of characters who carry over from episode to episode. Sitcoms can be contrasted with sketch comedy, blah, 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 and stand-up comedy, where a comedian tells jokes and stories to an audience. Okay, um, the terms situational comedy or sitcom were not commonly used until the 1950s. There were prior examples on radio, but the first television sitcom is said to be Pinwright's Progress, 10 episodes being broadcast on the BBC in the United Kingdom between 1946 and 1947. In the United States, director and producer William Asher has been credited with being, quote-unquote, the man who invented the sitcom, having directed over two dozen of the leading sitcoms, including I Love Lucy, from the 1950s through the 1970s. Uh, there's Australian sitcoms, Canadian sitcoms, India, Mexico, New Zealand, Russia. Oh, here's Seinfeld. Here's a, a picture of Seinfeld. Is there an episode list or something? I bet there's uh, a... All right, I'm going to... I'll go to Seinfeld. I wonder what the name of that episode was. I don't know. We all know what Seinfeld is. Episode number one, he gets hit by a bus and a car. Spoiler <laughs> alerts. So if you've never watched Seinfeld, I'm sorry, but we gotta. Yeah, the first episode is when he gets uh, when he becomes a paraplegic, quadriplegic. <laughs> <I would say. laughs> and the rest of the seasons are his battle of learning how to live this way. Yeah. Let's go to. I went to plot lines. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I bet we can. Many Seinfeld episodes are based on the writer's real-life experiences with the experiences reinterpreted for the character's storylines. For example, George's storyline, The Revenge, is based on Larry David's experience at Saturday Night Live. I think that's where he quits his job 
and then shows, shows back up, up to work. The contest is also based on David's experiences. That's where they had a masturbation contest. The smelly car storyline is based on Peter Melham's lawyer friend who could not get a bad smell out of his car. The strike is based on Dan O'Keefe's dad who made up his own holiday, Festivus. Uh. Here's themes. The series was often described as a show about nothing. However, Seinfeld in 2014 stated... Quote, unquote, the pitch for the show, the real pitch, when Larry and I went to NBC in 1988 was we want to show how a comedian gets his material. The show about nothing was just a joke in an episode many years later. And Larry and I, to this day, are surprised that it caught on as a way that people describe the show, because to us, it's the opposite of that. But they lean on the show. It's not about nothing. They lean on it. So... Usual conventions like isolating the characters from the actors playing them and separating the character's world from that of the actors and audience were broken. Such One such example is the story arc where the characters promote a TV sitcom series named Jerry, the show within a show. I think uh, Gary Shandling did that. His whole show was that show on the Larry was, Sanders show. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. There are no fewer than 22 fictional movies featured, <laughs> like Rochelle Rochelle, prognosis negative. That's so great. Because of these several elements, Seinfeld became the first TV series since Monty Python's Flying Circus, which we covered in a very recent episode, to be widely described as postmodern. Jerry Seinfeld is an avid Abbott and Costello fan, and he has cited the Abbott and Costello show as an influence on Seinfeld. We got to do a Patreon watch party of the Abbott and Costello Costello show. show. Oh, yeah. Everybody on the show knows I'm a fan. We're always joking about how we do stuff from their show. George and I will often get into a riff that has the rhythm from the old Abbott and Costello shows, and sometimes I'll hit George in the chest the way Abbott would hit Costello. That's what Seinfeld says. The series includes numerous references to the team. George Costanza's middle name is Lewis, after Costello. In the episode The Old Man, it features a cantankerous character named Sid Fields as a tribute to the landlord on the team's TV show. All right, I think I see a route here, Jason, to get to Coco. Really? Is it through Seinfeld? Through Seinfeld. I don't think it's... Well, maybe. We'll see. But I don't think it's through the Coco episode. Oh, I wonder what that episode was called. I think we can get to Coca. The lexicon of Seinfeldian code words. Oh, boy. And recurring Seinfeldian code words and recurring phrases that evolved around particular episodes, such as like, uh, yada, 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 no soup for you. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Not at all. Is referred to as sign language. I don't know that anybody has referred to it, uh, which is the title of Jerry Seinfeld's best-selling. Wait, be amazing if Coco knew Seinfeld sign language. What if, like, that's what the scientists <laughs> taught Coco? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seinfeld <laughs> sign language. That'd be amazing Coco's if, like, only like, Coco knew sign language. With, what's the deal with hey? <laughs> it's not betting, but they keep putting it in my cage. <laughs> I don't even like bananas. I imagine, I imagine, yeah, a gorilla version of Seinfeld, and when he does 
when he slaps George, he like immediately kills him. <laughs> Pushes him through yeah. a wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he actually rips George's arms off and slaps them <laughs> against, slaps his own arms against his chest. Yeah, yeah. They get they get a little bit more three stooges as the seasons go on. A <laughs> <laughs> lot of slipping on bananas. <laughs> All right, I went to sign language, the book, which has like classic 1990s cheesy yeah i've held i've held that book i don't want to say i read it no 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 i've held it the title is a play on words taking advantage of how the first four letters of seinfeld are a homonym of sign as in sign language i went to sign language the real sign language, American sign language. Good old-fashioned mom-and-pop sign language. Mom and Mom pop. can't hear, pop can't hear, so they got to sign to each other. Uh, sign languages are languages that, are u- that use the visual manual modality to convey meaning. Sign languages are expressed through manual articulations in combination with non-manual elements. Uh, they're full-fledged natural languages with their own grammar and lexicon. See, I would have thought they just have set words for everything. Uh, sign languages are not universal, and they are not mutually intelligible with each other, although there are striking similarities among sign languages. Sign language should not be confused with body language, a type of nonverbal communication. I thought they were going to say sign language is to not be confused with sign language, Seinfeld's... The books. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is a huge article, too. Um, so I went to deaf communities and deaf culture. When deaf people constitute a relatively small proportion of the general population, deaf communities often develop that are distinct from the so- surrounding hearing community. Oh, I wonder if there's... um. It sounds fun. Deaf Appalachia communities. Oh, you mean if there was an Appalachian Appalachian uh, deaf community? Whoa. Communities on communities. Isolation on isolation. These deaf communities are very widespread in the world, associated especially with sign language used in urban areas and throughout the nation, and the cultures they have developed are very rich. One example of sign language variation in the deaf community is Black ASL. This sign language was developed in the black deaf community as a variant during the American era of segregation and racism, where young black deaf students were forced to attend separate schools than their white deaf peers. Kind of like black Twitter, I guess. Yep. All right, I'm going to look for, (laughs) is white Twitter just Twitter? It's white Twitter is cancel culture. Uh, Baby sign language. Primate use. There we go, baby. Uh, There have been several notable examples of scientists teaching signs to non-human primates in order to communicate with humans, such as chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. However, linguistics generally point out that this does not constitute knowledge of a human language as a complete system rather than simply signs and words. Notable examples of animals who have learned signs include chimpanzees, Washo, Nimchimsky, that's a good chimpanzee name, yeah. and gorillas, Michael the gorilla, and Coco the gorilla. Ooh, click on Michael. All right, Michael the gorilla. <laughs> 
All right, we're on Coco. We made it. A thousand words of gorilla sign language. So a made up sign language. This puts Coco's vocabulary at the same level as a three-year-old human. In contrast to other experiments attempting to teach sign language to non-human primates, Francine Patterson, who was the instructor and caregiver, simultaneously exposed Coco to spoken English from an early age. It was reported that Coco understood approximately 2,000 words of spoken English in addition to the signs. Wow. Coco also watched Seinfeld a lot. Didn't you learn English by watching cartoons growing and up? Coco, by watching Seinfeld. And Coco learned sign language through watching Seinfeld. As with other great ape language experiments, the extent to which Coco mastered and demonstrated language through the use of these signs is disputed. She understood nouns, verbs, and adjectives, including abstract concepts like good and fake, It is generally accepted that she did not use syntax or grammar and that her use of language did not exceed that of a young human child. However, she scored between 70 and 90 on various IQ scales, and some experts, including uh, Mary Lee Jensvold, claim that Coco, quote-unquote, used language the same way people do. All right, just scrolling through here. Coco chilled with Robin Williams, Fred Rogers from Mr. Rogers, Betty White, William Shatner, Flea, Leonardo DiCaprio, Peter Gabriel, and Sting. All in one room? Yeah, Coco was holding a French-style salon. That's amazing. Coco is a who's who of gorillas. Yeah. In 1985, Coco was allowed to pick out two new kittens from a litter to be her companions. The animals she chose which she named Lipstick and Smokey. Smokey! Were also Manxes. Is that a type of cat? Manxes? No idea. Coco picked the name after seeing the tiny orange Manx for the first time. When her trainer asked the meaning of the name, Coco answered, Lips, Lipstick, Coco. Whoa, here we go. Nipple fixation. Ooh. Coco was reported to have a preoccupation with both male and female human nipples, with several people saying that Coco requested to see their nipples. She signed? She signed nipples, nipples. She probably signed language spring break. (laughs) Wet t-shirt. In 2005, wow, okay, this is... Coco's Me Too moment oh, here. Shit. In 2005. Oh, did Coco kill herself because she was about to get outed? Me Too'd? No, Coco did get outed. In 2005, three staff at the Gorilla Foundation, where Coco resided, filed lawsuits against the organization, alleging that they were pressured to reveal their nipples to Coco by the organization's executive director, among other violations of labor law. So Coco was a co conspirator. That's where the co comes from. Co-conspirator. Uh, <laughs> Coco put the co in Coco's... Yeah. You get it. <laughs> uh, the lawsuits were settled out of court. Gorilla expert Kristen Lucas had said... I'm Kristen Lucas, gorilla expert. <laughs> <laughs> it's on her card. Just gorilla expert. <laughs> yeah. She has a business card that she gives to other gorillas. <laughs> and they just eat it. <laughs> Well, she said uh, other gorillas are not known to have had a similar nipple fixation. Mm. So yeah, that begs the question. It was taught. Was Coco 
born with a nipple yep. fixation or was she taught to have a nipple That's fixation? To- I totally agree. Uh, Coco was taught. That's the parents' fault. Let's wrap it up here. Coco lived with another gorilla, Michael, who also learned sign language, but he died in 2000. She then lived with another male gorilla until her death. Coco's weight of 280 pounds was higher than would be for normal gorilla. Yeah, sedentary gorilla. Uh, gorillas in the wild are usually between 150 and 200. Wow. Coco was a bit of a chonk. Coco died in her sleep during the morning of June 19th, 2018 at the Gorilla Foundation's preserve in Woodside, California at the age of 46. The Gorilla Foundation released a statement that said, quote unquote, the impact has been profound and what she has taught us about emotional capacity of gorillas and their cognitive abilities will continue to shape the world. Even though Coco was 46 years old when she died, her death took staff members of the Gorilla Foundation by surprise. Coco, dead from being me too There you have it, Shenandoah National Park, all the way to Coco the nipple-loving gorilla. That's how she wanted to be remembered. Just a few quick shout-outs before I go. Music for the show was provided by Davey and the Chains, and you can check them out on Spotify. Also on Spotify or wherever you listen is my other podcast that I do with White Bones called The Roamer's Book Club. It's a book club podcast where we read adventure books and then talk about them. Jason also just launched another podcast where he covers Formula One racing. It's called Lewis Hamilton is Dope as Fuck and You Are Not. And that's also on iTunes or Spotify. Finally, you can check out Jason on Instagram at Laftinas. And you can check out me on Instagram at Kyle Berseth. If you want to email us, send us an email to wikiupod at gmail.com. That's wikiupod at gmail.com. Dot com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Ooh, that's milky. And bean.